0: Welcome to Volume 3 of Divers Down, Chapter 4, The Bubble Machine. Pete Jordan's office on Mackay Pier was furnished mostly with tables on which drawings, blueprints, and manuals were spread. The only wall decorations were a calendar and an artist's conception of what was obviously an underwater habitat, a home, workshop, and pressure chamber for divers. Kip studied the painting with interest, because the design was unusual. The big central cylinder had clear hemispheric ends of glass or plastic. He was sure that was for good visibility. But it made him wonder. Working divers did their looking around when out in the water. Small ports gave them enough visibility from inside the habitat. It didn't look to Kip like a design for commercial divers. Around the steel central portion, which was painted high visibility orange, were large gas bottles like bullets in a cartridge belt. The cylinder lay on a steel mesh platform, parallel to twin catamaran hulls that showed under the mesh. Between the hulls on the bottom of the cylinder was a diver entry hatch. To the rear of the cylinder were a large box and an electric motor pod from which a three-blade screw jutted. Mobile, towable, and simple in design, Kip concluded. It was similar to other Mackay range habitats, except for the clear ends. Pete Jordan flipped a switch on his intercom as the five young men got settled. Johnny, will you come into my office, please? To the boys, he said, Johnny Keanu is chief technician for my unit. He'll be your crew chief. Johnny was pure Hawaiian, a huge man, built as though a hurried sculptor had carved him from dark brown oak. He had a massive round torso, powerful arms and legs, and hands like baseball gloves. His voice had the rumble of gravel falling down a wooden slide. Aloha, gang, Jordan said. Now tell us something about yourselves, kids. Reed, what are you called? Chuck, sir. He was a tall, slim boy, with rather long brown hair and a thin, scholarly-looking face. Call us Johnny and Pete. Okay, Pete, I'm a high school senior, and I'm going to try for Webb Institute next year because I want to be a naval architect. I've worked nights as a draftsman. Last summer, I had a shipyard job and learned to do rigging. I have a YMCA divers card and 39 sea dives. Good and to the point, Jordan said. Polakowski? He nodded to a rather short, solidly built boy with close-cropped, almost white hair, blue eyes, and a round, grinning face. Call me Ski, Pete. I just graduated from high school. I have an NAUI divers card and 52 sea dives, mostly to wrecks off Rhode Island. I've recovered and sold enough junk, portals, lights, crockery, stuff like that to put me through two years of marine technician training starting next year. Last summer I helped salvage a cabin cruiser from 40 feet of water in a lake and I've spent two summers as a hand on a Point Judith commercial trawler. Excellent background Ski. McKay. I'm called Willis. I've finished prep school and have been accepted at Dartmouth. I'll major in mechanical engineering. I have a PADI card and 74 open sea dives. Last summer, I helped Martin Collier. He's the Smithsonian archaeologist. When he raised that Spanish treasure ship off the Dry Tortugas, I'm a very good underwater photographer. Being from the Great Lakes, I have a lot of lake dives too, more than 50. I was the project leader for my class when we built a miniature habitat and put it down in 20 feet of water. I guess you could say I've had all-around experience. Very impressive, Willis. Morgan? Kip hated to describe his own scanty background. McKay made him seem like a rank amateur with his divers card from the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. Real sea experience with a professional archaeologist and the rest. Hi, my name is Kip i've had the usual high school courses through junior year i'm an naui diver with thirty-four sea dives i can sail or handle a boat up to thirty-five feet in length and i'm comfortable around engines i spent last summer working in a dive shop mostly repairing regulators and other scuba gear that's it fine kip jordan smiled at the hawaiian boy want to tell us about yourself umi kip looked at the boy with interest umi was about five foot nine in height slim, well-built, and he moved with the grace of a natural athlete. He seemed no more than 12 or 13, although Kip learned later that he was 16. His skin was even darker than Johnny's, and his hair was long, jet-black, and wavy. With his alert, dark eyes and the smile on his face, he looked as though he enjoyed life. Umi asked me to speak for him, Johnny said. "His from a village on Maui, a few miles from Hana. You may not know that Mr. Pryor operates and is part-owner of a huge ranch at Hana. Umi has worked at the ranch for three years. Last year we took the Holakai, our engineering ship, to Hana, and Umi gave us a hand. He turned out to have a natural feeling for marine equipment. We also found he was some diver. I've seen him skin-dive to 50 feet and spear a fish with just a lance. He took to scuba as though it had been invented just for him, so we're going to turn him into a marine technician. He reads and understands English okay but he hasn't been exposed to enough howlies to speak it very well. But don't worry, because you'll be able to communicate all right, and he'll learn good speaking English from associating with you. Umi nodded and smiled. We talk good. Sure, you will. Pete agreed. Okay, kids. I've seen you all studying the painting on the wall. That's your project. It's a new habitat, a prototype for an undersea vacation cottage. We'll use it to test the idea of undersea vacations. So far, we haven't named it, but Johnny has been calling it the bubble machine because it has those two acrylic hemispheres. Operational design depth is about 100 feet. Normal capacity is two people for two weeks or four for a shorter time. As you can see, it rides on catamaran hulls, which are also ballast tanks. The batteries and prop are to change locations for short distances. Life support is good indefinitely, on umbilical, with a seventy two hour reserve in batteries. It has the usual interior equipment, a little more plush than working divers would need. May I ask a question? Kip asked. All you want, after you've read the manuals. You'll find most answers in those. We have all the parts, so your job is just assembly, with Johnny in charge. Let me stress that lives will depend on your doing a perfect job. You must, and I mean must, follow the manual precisely. Willis, know what a torque wrench is? McKay's smile said that any idiot knew that. Of course, it's a wrench calibrated for putting just the right amount of twisting force, torque, on a nut or bolt. Ski, why use a torque wrench? I guess it's to make sure the right amount of twist is put on each nut. Why is that important, Chuck? I suppose that when something is bolted together, the stress has to be even all around. Jordan's keen eyes met Kip's. When you put your regulator on Carl's tank, did you torque it down? Kip froze. So word of his goof had been passed on. No, that is, I didn't. Why not? It wasn't necessary. I mean, it's a hand connection, not for a wrench. Pete looked from face to face. None of you has given me the basic reason for talking. He paused to give them a chance to speak up. Chuck and Ski shrugged. Umi looked blank. Willis examined his nails. Pete's eyes went back to Kip. All right, can you tell us? Kip's mouth was dry. Pete was deliberately riding him, just for borrowing that blasted tank. He began to get angry at the injustice, and when he was angry, words came easier, and he knew the answer, even if Pete didn't expect him to. A nut and bolt form a tension system, he said carefully. It's the elasticity of the metal that pulls the bolted pieces together. Nuts and bolts are designed to hold most strongly under a definite amount of tension. Too little tension, and they don't give maximum pull. Too much, and you either strip the threads or shear off the bolt. Instructions usually give the exact amount of tension in foot-pounds, and a torque wrench is calibrated so you can apply precisely that amount. Pete just nodded. You will find the correct number of foot-pounds for each bubble machine's connection in the manuals, and you will torque down in exact accordance with those numbers. That is vital. Johnny handed a thick manual to each boy. Study them. Sleep with them. Dream about them. We stick the bubble machine together then test it. Study until lunch. We start this afternoon." To assemble and test a new Mackay habitat was more than Kip had ever hoped. It was a dream job, but his steps were far from light as he walked up the hill to the dorm to study until lunchtime. Living down his Sunday dive was not going to be easy, if he could ever live it down. As the days passed, Kip learned the joy of working with the right tools and equipment. First they assembled the catamaran hulls and the steel mesh. Then a crane lowered the big main cylinder onto the mesh and they bolted that down. Valves, servo motors, airlines, and electrical cables were attached. Little by little, Kip got to know his fellow workers. Ski with his moon face and happy grin was always in good spirits, always ready for a gag. Chuck was quiet and relaxed, a good worker and a comfortable companion. Umi, once away from the adults, talked freely in an odd mixture of Hawaiian and broken English called pigeon. At first, Kip was baffled by Umi's language. Ski and Chuck had been billeted in Kip's bunk room, and the three were stretched out in their bunks that first day, discussing the bubble machine. Umi came to the door and gave them their first of what Ski called Umiisms.
1: E hey, keep ske and chuk Sato he tell Umi us Kanakas gotta show them poopy kids how to get topside a papin alo so get on your mollus I hele kaua.
0: Translated this meant Hey Kip pronounced Keep Ski Ske and Chuck Chuk. Sato told me, Umi, we natives, have to show those crazy white kids how to get up on a surfboard. So put on your trunks. Malo was Hawaiian for loincloth. Let's go. As Kip learned to understand Umi, he found the Hawaiian boy to be a happy, amusing company, full of island lore and proud of his heritage. He was a direct descendant of that famous Haapili who had been the loyal friend of King Kamehameha and had carried the great chief's body to its last resting place hiding it so well that no man has ever found where the first king of a united Hawaii was buried. Willis McKay was the only abrasive in the smooth flow of working hours. He was always trying to impress everyone with how much he knew, with a supercilious smirk on his face that made the other four yearn to remove it. Kip and Willis clashed openly just once. Kip had finished installing a servo motor, and he stood up and looked for Johnny Keanu to get instructions on what to tackle next. Johnny was in the tool room, and Willis promptly assumed command. Get on that battery box next, Morgan. Kip ignored him. Willis put a hand on Kip's shoulder and pulled him around. Didn't you hear me? Willis was two inches taller than Kip and a good 20 pounds heavier, but difference in size meant nothing when Kip got mad. He said very quietly, If you ever put your hands on me or speak to me in that tone again, I'll feed you your own head. Willis took one look at Kip's face and got busy torquing down the gas bottle retainers. Kip realized when he cooled down that Willis wasn't afraid of him. The older boy had been in the wrong, and it was no time to pick up the challenge. But Kip knew he had made an enemy, and it didn't bother him. Gradually, the summer employees began to form into two loosely-knit groups, during off-hours, Willis was the focus of one group that included Bob Richards, Carol Berquist, and Fran Duncan from the Institute, Holly Gold from Sea Life Park, and Francisco Avilar, called Pancho for short, who was a specimen collector for both Park and Institute. Willis had a car, a vivid orange convertible. No one knew whether it was borrowed or rented. He also made it clear he had plenty of money. The old man is loaded, Willis said once and demonstrated by taking his group out to dinner most nights to avoid taking a turn as cook and helper in the dorm kitchen. Kip was regularly in the company of Ski, Chuck, Umi, Sato, Susan, Ann Bloom, Vicky Lahoa, a tiny Chinese girl named Jenny Wong who was a computer specialist, and Tom Shepard of Arizona who was a photographer and an electronics technician. The other summer kids were either locals who went home nights or those who had friends who lived near Makapu. Kip didn't realize he was the focus of his group, the one to whom they looked first for an idea of how to spend the evening, or to whom they turned to discuss a problem. He just thought of them as his particular friends. Most often, their evenings were spent swimming and surfing. Sato, Umi, and Vicky were experts, and it was a joy to Kip to watch them. True to his promise, Sato taught them surfing, with Umi helping. They learned how to judge the waves, waiting for a big one and timing it perfectly so that it caught the board and carried them for a long, exhilarating ride to the beach. They learned how to control the boards, and wipeouts became less frequent. Vicky showed them how to body surf, riding the waves as though sliding down an endless chute until they grounded in the sand. Between work and play, the days passed quickly. Now and then there was a seminar at which a center scientist or engineer discussed his specialty. The sessions were lively, and Kip learned to appreciate the high quality of the Makapu'u summer gang. They were a sharp bunch. To his deep regret, he saw little of Julie. Daytime, she spent most of her time in Honolulu, refining the last details of her project. At night, Ted picked her up and took her home to Kailua. When she did have lunch at Sea Life Park, Willis always managed to be sitting with her when Kip arrived. He didn't like it, but there was nothing he could do except try harder. Something always interfered with his getting there first. Often Pete had him recheck some part of the work completed that morning while the others went off to lunch. Kip was convinced that Jordan was riding him deliberately, and he wondered if the Mackay engineer might be trying to make him quit. But he didn't really believe that. Taking a tank from an open shed and diving alone weren't enough to make him an undesirable... He knew that he was a fast and accurate worker who did a little more than his share. He took it without grumbling. It wasn't that either Pete or Johnny was unpleasant to him. On the contrary, Pete treated them all alike, with a businesslike but not unfriendly attitude. Only the extra work he piled on Kip was different from his treatment of the others. Johnny Keanu was a warm and friendly man, remarkably skilled and sure in his work, His huge hands could fit small pieces together with the delicacy of a surgeon, and Kip learned much from him. The other boys were good, capable craftsmen. Chuck was quiet, steady, and thorough. Umi and Ski made a game of working, but they were precise in their tasks. Kip, whose natural dislike for Willis was kept honed sharp by the older boy's obvious pursuit of Julie, would have liked to write him off as a phony, but willis did his work well and was obviously knowledgeable even though his attitude said the work and the boys performing it was little challenge to him the first week ended with a saturday afternoon opportunity to go on a big hunt a lobster dive with ted and marge scott after the hunt was announced kip spent two days in happy anticipation of a chance to dive with julie then late saturday morning pete took him aside and led him to where a piece of equipment was being uncrated. This is the air scrubber for the habitat, Pete told him. The manufacturer sent us the wrong one. It has more capacity than we need. If we wait for a replacement, it'll throw off our schedule by at least a week, even with the air freight. The extra capacity is no problem. It's the dimensions that are. Think you could redesign the interior layout to make it fit? Kip knew the manual by heart, and he knew it could be done. I think so, he replied. Okay, get on it. I'll meet you here in the morning to go over your design. We'll install the scrubber first thing on Monday morning. Kip's lips tightened. There went his dive with Julie. Pete was really putting him down. Okay, he could take whatever the Mackay engineer handed out. He said crisply, yes sir. While Kip worked, the gang dove for lobsters and crabs, then cooked them for a feast at the Scots. He heard all about it when Ski and Chuck returned. Just as he was tumbling into bed, he finished his design Sunday morning in time to meet Pete, who checked his sketches quickly and nodded, "Fine, Kip. Give George your overtime for payroll." Kip stayed by himself for the rest of the day, half tempted for all the five minutes to quit and go home, but he wasn't a quitter. Regardless of how Jordan pushed him, he was learning a lot. He wasn't on vacation. He was on a job. He'd take guff from the boss as part of it. He was writing letters when a tapping interrupted him. Jimmy Clary was tacking a notice on the dorm bulletin board. Kip read it with interest. There would be a beach party Friday evening with a cookout and beach fire and a real band from Honolulu. Those interested were to sign up. Kip didn't wait to read it twice. He hurried to the phone and got Ted Scott's number from the book and dialed. Julie was delighted to hear from him and told him so warmly. She not only accepted without hesitation his invitation to be his date at the beach party, but also chatted with him for a full half hour. She explained that she would like to spend more time with the gang at the center, but she was on the final stages of her project, working every day and evening. Kip didn't ordinarily discuss his feelings or troubles. He knew people were preoccupied with their own concerns. But Julie was so easy to talk to that he found himself describing the pushing around he was getting from Pete. Julie listened to how Pete made him recheck the work of the others and how he kept Kip from the big hunt with extra work. She asked thoughtfully,
1: Kip, are you sure he's pushing you around? Sounds to me as though he's depending on you more than on any of the others. It was a tempting thought, but Kip didn't buy it.
0: Pete had Johnny Keanu to depend on, and Johnny knew more than the five kids combined. On Monday morning, Kip didn't even get to install the air scrubber. Instead, he helped Johnny fit the plastic hemispheres into their silicone rubber gaskets and torque them into place with infinite care. It was a tense job. Uneven stress on a slight over would crack the clear plastic. All he needed to cook himself for keeps was to damage a hemisphere but he and Johnny were far too careful to allow such an accident. By Thursday night, the bubble machine was fully assembled. On Friday morning, the dock crane lowered it into the water for its first shallow test. Pete, Johnny, and the boys got into their diving gear, connected the thick umbilical through which the control lines, air, and electrical power entered the habitat, and dropped into the water. The bubble machine rode high on its twin hulls. At a signal from Pete, the control room activated servo motors that flooded the hulls. Kip saw that his side was sinking faster than the other and let out a yell. The crane cable tightened and power was shut off. Pete and Johnny investigated and power was shot into the servo motors several times. Pete shook his head. Take it up. We have a stuck valve on the port hull. Disappointed, Kip went up the ladder and removed his diving gear. Back on the pier, the valve control was tested again. He could hear the solenoid click in the motor line, and he knew from the sound that it was slipping uselessly. We'll have to find a new valve, Pete said violently. Blast all manufacturers who ship defective stuff. Johnny, you and the boys pull this one. I'll start phoning for a new one. By lunchtime, the defective valve was on a lab bench. Kip saw that a stainless steel disc made a seal by fitting tightly into a groove inside the housing. The motor was supposed to turn the valve stem and draw the disc into the upper part of the housing, but it barely started before jamming. After lunch, the boys were put to work cleaning up the lab. Pete returned around four o'clock and reported failure. All available valves were the wrong kind. "'We'll have to use this one,' he said. "'We have to finish the shallow water test tomorrow,' because we're all going to Maui on Monday for a special project. Kip, you've repaired scuba gear? Kip sensed what was coming. That's right. Okay, gate valves are a lot less complicated than regulators. Tear this one apart. Find out what's wrong. If you can't fix it, call me at home and I'll come in and help. I want this thing working so we can install it first thing in the morning. For an instant, Kip was tempted to refuse. It would take hours to fix the valve. If he could fix it at all. He had a date with Julie, but refusing was the same as quitting his job. He said coldly, you'll get it. All right, the rest of you can take off. This is a one-man job. Kip would have liked to knock the smirk off of Willis's face. He suspected that the older boy had tried to date Julie for the beach party. Now his competition had been pulled out of play, and Willis obviously was pleased ski chuck and umi lingered i'm sorry kipper kip kept his anger under control no sweat will one of you tell julie what happened we take care you pretty wahini umi told him if mikay tries to get near her we'll bounce him around the beach like a beach ball ski said bounce him once for me kip urged then he got busy for a long time he just sat at the bench turning the valve over and over in his hands, trying to picture the interior. He had repaired a corroded gate valve once. How was this different? It was hard to concentrate because he was smarting at the injustice of being saddled with the valve repair. Borrowing a scuba tank wasn't all that much of a crime. Why was Pete picking on him for all these extra chores? He wondered if perhaps he had just rubbed the engineer the wrong way. A matter of personality clash. After a while, he began concentrating. He found a pencil and graph paper and sketched what he thought was the interior design. He didn't want to risk further damage while taking it apart. As he finished, he realized it was getting dark in the lab. The sun was setting. He turned on the lights and clamped the valve into a bench vise. With the largest adjustable wrench he had, he threw his weight into breaking the seal of the big nut around the valve stem. The nut held. He needed a longer lever. He searched for a length of pipe to fit over the wrench handle, and at last found one alongside one of the pier buildings. As he picked it up, a laughing, feminine voice asked, Are you going to hit sharks with that thing? Julie stood there, a paper bag in her hand.
1: Confused, he said, No, I mean, it's not to hit... Oh, heck, hi, Julie. Hi, Kip. The boys told me what happened. I stayed at the party long enough to cook dinner for us. She opened her bag on a dock box. A hot dog and a hamburger for you, two hot dogs for me, and root beer for both of us. Okay? Kai, he said delighted. Julie sat on the dock box and took a bite of her hot dog. I'd about given up on you when you called Sunday. I was beginning to wonder if you knew how to use a telephone. Well, I wanted to call, Kip explained, and I knew you were finishing your project, and I didn't think it was
0: right to disturb you just because I wanted to talk. Besides, i have been getting the treatment from Pete, like this tonight, and I didn't want to pour my troubles into your ear. He smiled at her. You're so easy to talk to that the one time I did call, I practically flooded Kailua with my beefs. Julie smiled back. The report is finished, and even if it weren't, I wouldn't be too busy if you called, Kip. A wide smile communicated his feelings. He forgot his anger at being stuck with the valve. "'Having Julie to himself like this "'was better than being with the crowd on the beach. "'He was suddenly aware that her eyes were very bright "'and she was almost bubbling with suppressed excitement. "'What is it?' he asked. "'What's
1: turned you on?' "'Her calm broke. "'Oh, Kip, I gave Tap Pryor the coordinates of my wreck on Monday. "'He flew down to Hana, personally to dive and search, "'and Kip, he found it! I've been dying to tell you!'
0: "'He was delighted for her, Because he knew how hard she had worked. Kai,
1: that's great! You could imagine how I felt, Julie said happily. Until Tap actually located the wreck, I couldn't be sure anything was left. It was buried deep under the sand. Honest, it's a miracle he ever found it. I doubt it's a miracle, Kip stated. You've been working ever since I got here to pinpoint the location. You must have hit it on the nose. Well, I was very close, she admitted. Pete and Tap are taking a group to Maui on Monday. We're going to see how much is left to recover and what has to be done. The kids will travel on the westward and the Holokai to meet us there. And you're going too because Pete said he was taking all five of you. We'll see my wreck together, Kip. After dinner and a chat with
0: Julie, it was hard to get back to a mere valve. Kip had excellent powers of concentration when working, but Julie's presence strained them to the limit. The extra leverage of the pipe length over the wrench handle broke the seal and the valve came apart. Kip found a hunk of metal lodged in the stem screw, wedged in so that a half turn rammed it into the sleeve and stopped the action, pried it out, and filed down the burrs it had left. Some careless clod of an inspector missed it, he explained to Julie. Probably it was loose and didn't get in the way when they tested. Later it fell into the threads and then jammed tight when we turned on the servo motor. The damage repaired, Assembly was another matter. The first time he tried, the gate wouldn't open fully. On the next try, it wouldn't close tightly. Ted arrived to pick up Julie and got absorbed in the problem. After several tries, they backed the gate out to the fully open position, then assembled the valve again. Kip turned the stem, and the gate obediently moved into its groove. I guess that's what they mean by groovy, Julie said. And the three of them shook hands all around. Kip tightened the nut, then put his shoulders into sealing the valve. He connected the servo motor sleeve to the stem and tried it with power. It opened and closed
1: smoothly. I'll call Pete, he said pleased. We can test on schedule. And then get ready for Maui, Julie said. Yep,
0: Kip agreed. The way he felt, he was ready for Maui or anything else, including wrestling tiger sharks, if need be.